It's a very important topic, um, perhaps like, um, we'll soon see why, often considered taboo. Um, some people don't think it should be. Um, as we're going to see, there's a reason why it is and a reason why it's still important to talk about. And that's because sexuality is one of the most powerful forces in human nature. Um, the most central institution in our lives, most stabilizing part of our lives, um, is our marriage or love lives. And um, our marriage and love lives revolve around our sexuality, around our sexual relationship, around our sexual actions. And so that central, um, the family unit revolves around sexuality. So a very big part of the stabilizing force in society, stabilizing force in our lives, the, our immediate family is structured around our sexuality. Yet, so many people, if not everyone, struggle to contain their natural human sexuality and actions that result in one way or another from their natural sexual needs or drives often destroy lives, often actions that are regretted later. Sometimes when people are involved in powerful people lose everything because of sexual encounters. Um, sexual encounters are often at the center of many, many, many scandals, um, especially since people love talking about these kinds of things, and all you have to do is turn on the news, and they're always talking about these things. So on the one hand, it's a very, very powerful central force in our lives, a natural human instinct. It's a very, very powerful central force in our lives. On the other hand, and necessary in our lives, and it's behind the most stabilizing structure in normal, civilized life, the family. And on the other hand, it's also the source of many people's problems, and it's probably the most destructive force in, li in our lives as well. So what does our ancient traditions, what does Judaism say about this powerful force that on the one hand is the source of love, is the source of families, and on the other hand causes terrible harm and destruction destroys lives? So for much of history, um, cultures generally considered sexuality or the natural human sexual drive as one of the most basic fundamental human activities, and it is naturally. And given that the natural human instinct bears very close resemblance to the, what animals do, um, it's not pretty much the same, and it doesn't involve any unique, at, the, at a very basic level, it does not involve any unique human skills, any form of intellect or any sophistication. Um, you, uh, everyone has this same natural sexual drive that comes when they're young. Um, and so it's always, it was always considered a very base, a very instinctive human act. So the response generally depended on how cultures viewed human instinct. For cultures that celebrated um, hedonism, glorified the human body, glorified the humans enjoying themselves, living it up, and doing whatever, live, um, and live it up now because tomorrow you're going to die. Cultures that had that attitude, classic was, well, some of the early pagan cultures were like that. Um, the Greek culture was famous at being very, uh, for being very hedonistic. For these cultures, sexuality, 
um, of all forms, was often considered the greatest human expression. That was the greatest human drive. It was the way you can most enjoy yourself, the way you could live your life to the fullest by maximizing your sexual activity in every way possible. And so therefore, for hedonistic cultures, sexuality stood at the top of their um, ideals. Other cultures and religions looked down on human instinct. We saw human instinct as animalistic. Um, we saw it as something, as, as the, at the very, very bottom of a person, and a person's role as rising above human instinct. Despite our instincts, despite our natural urges, controlling it, limiting it, and focusing on greater things, on better things, on more powerful things, more meaningful things than just base human instinct. Focusing on intellect, on emotion, on perhaps on spirituality, other spiritual forces greater than just our human instinct. For such cultures and religions, um, which are most major religions today, um, that believe in rising above our instinct, rising above our nature, that such cultures generally disdain sexuality. Sexuality was not a human ideal, but something that we're created with, but have to learn to manage and control and limit so it doesn't get in the way of our more sophisticated pursuits. So such religions generally encouraged celibacy, often encouraged that at least the ideal people that wanted to live close to God should be celibate. And many religions today still encourage celibacy. And generally, most religions, every religion allows for marriage. Those that don't allow for marriage end up dying out pretty quickly. So, uh, so even those that allowing for marriage is generally seen, and it's, by, it's in almost every major religion today, is seen as a necessary evil. It's necessary for procreation. You don't want to die out. So those that don't want to take the oath of celibacy are able to get married. Um, we allow for it in order that we should that our that our species should continue. Our religion, our people should continue, and it's also a necessary outlet for an uncontrollable human sexual um, drive. Recognizing as most. People, that most people cannot take an oath of celibacy. Most people need some sort of sexual outlet. And so therefore, most religions, even though they believed in higher human calling than base human instincts, and therefore saw sexuality as bad, as a necessary evil, they allowed for it um, in order to allow for some sort of outlet within, of course, very strict limitations, limitations of marriage, keeping it to um, uh, monogamous relationships, within very, very limited relationship. So where does Judaism fall in all of this, in, this, in, uh, in these different perspectives? So we recognize, it is true, that sexuality is a very base human instinct. It's, um, and perhaps the most powerful of all human instincts. Um, we do not celebrate hedonism. We don't celebrate the human body. We actually believe very strongly in rising above human instinct. We believe in um, the power of living a life focused on intellect, on greater, on greater purpose than ourselves, living a God-centered life rather than just following what we feel like, live, rather than living life to enjoy ourselves. So we definitely fall in the category of religions that 
believe in a higher calling, believe in rising above ourselves and controlling ourselves. Yet, Judaism has a unique view of human sexuality and the human sexual drive. We see it as something much, much more powerful than just a base human instinct. We see um, uh, in general, um, sex itself and everything about it, love and relationships, is something much, much deeper and much more powerful than just a necessary evil. The holiest place in Judaism, what's the holiest thing in Judaism? Place. Jerusalem is the holiest city in Judaism. In Jerusalem, what's the holiest place in Jerusalem? The Temple Mount. The Temple Mount. Very good. The Temple Mount, not the Kotel. We only go to the Kotel because we can't go to the Temple Mount. But the Kotel doesn't have any distinctive holiness. It's actually outside the Temple Mount. The holiness is the, the, is the Temple Mount, is the holiest place. Now, on the Temple Mount, what is the holiest spot on the Temple Mount? Where the Holy Sorry? The rock where the Holy of Holies stood. It may have stood on yeah. the rock that's there today. Where the Holy of Holies stood. On the Temple Mount was a temple courtyard. On the Temple Courtyard was a temple building. In that temple building, at the very back, was a room known as the Holy of Holies, which was a bare room that no one was allowed to go in except for the Kohen Gadol, which was the senior Kohen, on... Yom Kippur, only once a year he would go into this room known as Kodesh HaKadashim, Holy of Holies. What was inside the Kodesh HaKadashim, the Holy of Holies? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. We did a class about it a couple weeks back. The Ark of the Covenant. What was inside the Ark? (coughs) The Torah, the original Torah that God gave Moses and the original stones, the tablets that God had given Moses were inside this Ark. Ark is a box. What was set on top of the ark? Two cherubs. What are, or in Hebrew, kruvim? What are cherubs? Two angels? Young baby angels? What are cherubs? So cherubs, we are told in the Midrash, the Torah doesn't give us much detailed description. Cherubs, we are told, are kruvim in Hebrew. Cherub is just the English language. Um, was invented or evolved long after by people who knew the Torah, right? So there's a lot of words in English that were just made to translate words of Torah. So cherubs is just kruv in Hebrew, right? It's just that they made an English word to anglicize the Hebrew word kruv. Kruv, kruv. That's the Hebrew word for it. Cherub. A cherub is just an anglicized version of kruv. What's a kruv? So we're told the kruv is two figures, two human figures, which were essentially sticks with heads and faces at the top, and the sticks each had wings. And the wings, the wings were, went over, um, I showed you pictures back when we learned about it. The wings went, started on the back and went over their heads, facing forward. And the wings of these two figures met on top of the ark at the very middle. The middle of the ark, um, on, over the ark, the wings covered over the ark, the two wings. 
So, um, when the um, Romans came to destroy our temple, and they came in and they saw the cherubs, what was the first thing they thought? This is the Jewish idol. Now, for the Romans, this was a fascinating thing, because the Romans were amazed. They described how there's this temple in Jerusalem. It's the only temple in the world that has no statues. It's the only temple with no idols. Every other temple's full of idols. It's the only temple with no idols. Everyone knew the temple in Jerusalem has no idols. Then they come into the Holy of Holies, the very kind of central spot in the temple, and what do they see? These two figures. But we know Judaism doesn't have idols. So what was the role then? If they're not idols, then what are they? Cherubs. They're cherubs. (laughs) So what are they? So the Midrash tells us that these cherubs, we were not, God forbid, worshipping cherubs, because we don't worship any form or any figure in any way. They were not, we're not worshipping them, but they stood to represent something. Now they did not represent God, because nothing can represent God. God has no form or figure. So anything that you're going to create cannot possibly represent God. They do not represent God. So what do we put in the Holy of Holies then? What do they represent? Humanity? Sorry? Humanity? They don't represent humanity either. But this is what the Romans thought they represented. The Romans thought they represented God. They were wrong. They thought they were idols. They were not idols. They were wrong. Why did we have them? God told us to have them, but why? So they didn't represent God. They rather represented the relationship between God and His people. Or the relationship of love. They represented love. Love. Closeness. So? Sorry? They faced each other and touched each other. They represented love. They, they, were, they were not idols of love. We didn't, God forbid, worship them. But they were representations of God's relationship with His people. So much so, the Talmud says that when um, the, we did not act as we should, the cherubs would miraculously flip around and face away from each other. When we were acting as we should as a people, the How cherubs would, would turn back to him. Only he would know. <laughs> and we would have to trust him. So... <laughs> Only he knew. Nobody else would have known. Did so, the have uh, sex or were they the same opposite? They only had heads and shoulders and wings. Yeah, they didn't have. Um, they were just sticks. They didn't. Doesn't appear that they had any any sex. Now, I mean, would they have different? No, they, it doesn't appear they had specific genders. So. So the cherubs represented the relationship between God and His people, a, relation, a love that is mentioned many, many times in Scripture, how God loves His people. We love God. We have a close, powerful relationship, us and God, um, God and us. King Solomon, who wrote a number of books um, in our Scriptures, one of his books, one of his most beautiful books, is a book called Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs. If you haven't read it, I um, suggest you do. Um, Shir Hashirim is a song about a relationship between two lovers. 
two lovers that uh, at first love each other, and then one of them walks away, one of them disappears, and the other one's looking for the one that disappeared, and um, they, the one come, and then the other one disappears, and then the first one comes back and can't find him, and is looking, um, is looking for their lover and seeking them, and finally they get back together. And it's clearly a metaphor. We have a lot of metaphor in scripture, um, a lot of mishalim, a lot of parables. And it's clearly a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for our relationship with God. And uh, that's described many times in Scripture, how we turn away from God, God turns away from us, and then we come back looking for Him, and uh, we can't find Him anymore. Because, um, and it was our fault to start with. And so, um, so, so the Shir Shirim is Song of Songs, but Solomon describes a lot of beautiful descriptions um, of that relationship in Shir Shirim and Song of Songs. Uh, we quote a lot of it in our prayers often. And um, again, the love is a powerful metaphor for our relationship with God. But so we actually see love and relationship, relation, love between two people as a powerful metaphor for our relationship with God, between God's children and God, or God's people, God's spouse, we often call ourselves sometimes God's children, sometimes we call ourselves God's spouse, and God as well, and God on the other half. But we actually believe that a, the relationship between two people, the relationship between um, two lovers, is not just a metaphor for the relationship between us and God, but it actually helps cement the relationship between us and God. Why? Kabbalah explains that before creation, there was only one. We say it in our famous prayer, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. God is one. Before creation, there was no creation. There was just one and nothing else. With creation, now there are many, 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 many creations. And then at the center of creation, many, 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 many people. Every person stands, uh, every person has their own unique Likes, wants, personality, individuality, everyone's unique, everyone's different. So we're all, we have many. Our goal is to recreate that one by bringing God back into our world. How do we do that? By finding unity within our own lives. And we have many different ways we can find oneness within our lives. But the most powerful tool God gave us for finding oneness within our lives is he made every person as a half a soul, every male and female, as a male, every soul as a male half and a female half. And he gave us the ability to join together as a whole. So we can be two halves, and then when we join together, we have the ability to unite our souls as one. At that moment when we create this unity, when we create human unity between two people, that also creates a godly unity where God joins in that unity and connects with us. So unity, connecting two people, and the powerful human instinct of love, of connecting to another person, that powerful instinct of love is actually a reflection of our relationship with God and is actually part of our relationship with God by bringing together um, the two halves of the soul, we actually bring in God as well. 
And that is why um, we are told that the Hebrew word for man is ish. Ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. Very good. Ish is spelled aleph yud shin. Isha is spelled aleph shin he. They both have the same two letters, aleph and shin, the sh sound. They each have a different letter. The man has the yud and the woman has the he. Those two letters together make the first two letters of God's name, the yud and he. When a male and female, man and woman, join together as one, then God joins along with them. So, therefore, according to Kabbalah, there aren't two in a marriage. There are actually three, or there's a greater unity that unites them, God's power of, God's unity. And now, the powerful, now in general, when two people connect, it creates that unity. But the um, physical act of physically connecting through sex, the actual act of connecting is the most powerful unity that two people can make. And at that very moment, God joins you as well. God is there at that moment. So it's a powerful, very, very powerful spiritual moment. And that is why it is the key to creation. The only human power of creation is in creating children. And we need to create that godly unity in order to create the only way that we can create children. Not only is it the only human power of creation, it's the only human power of infinity. Everything that we do is limited. You can only throw the ball so far. You can only... Drive so fast. There's only such limit that you can do. Everything we do is limited. The only power of infinity that we have is when we create, that person can then go and create, that person can create, and we create. We've, we've essentially made um, what the Hebrew term for it is binyan ad, an infinite building we've built. It keeps going. It can keep going on forever. That's the human power of infinity. All there in the moment of intercourse between two people. So it's a very, very powerful moment. It's a moment of unity where God is found there as well. So Judaism doesn't just see our sexual drive and sexual acts as base, instinctive human acts or a necessary evil. We see it as a very, very powerful tool that God gave us, a drive that God gave us to create a powerful unity that brings God into our world and into our lives. So it's a very, very, very powerful thing. And that is why sex stands at the center of marriage. Marriage is the most stabilizing force in our lives. The Talmud uses the term in Aramaic, Tav Lemesef Tandu Milamesef Armelu, which roughly translates, people were made to live in pairs. God built us like that. We are happiest, and there's a lot of statistics for this, we are happiest, we are healthiest, we live longest when we live in pairs. Because we are built to live 
with someone else. So that power, so God created us this way because of the great power, uh, sorry, the, um, because of the great power of marriage, we have the, um, uh, bec- um, our sexual drive has the ability to create this stability in life, which then in turn can allow us to build a family, um, build a structure which stands at the very center of our of a normal uh, of uh, uh, the very center of the most structured possible life, and the very center of our civilization. So on the one hand, it is um, our sexual drives, and in particular, sexual acts. Sex itself is the most powerful, not just a hu- powerful human instinct. It's the most powerful stabilizing human force. And it stands at the center of the most important part of our lives. So it's a very, very powerfully positive thing. However, along with the great power of sexuality comes very, very great danger. All powerful things in life can be used for good and for bad. Think of a great scientist. A great scientist can use their knowledge to create great good. Or they could use their knowledge to create great destruction. Same goes a programmer can create great programs or can wreak havoc on, on others, right? A speaker, somebody who has persuasive powers. You could persuade people for good and for bad. The same is with almost everything in our life. Think of nuclear energy. Yeah. Nuclear energy is one of the most powerful forms of energy. Many believe that it may be the answer to all of our energy problems if we just employed enough nuclear energy. Definitely has solved, uh, definitely it's a big part of our energy um, cocktails today. But nuclear energy is also the most destructive force in the world and has the ability, we have enough nuclear weapons today to destroy our world many times over. So every positive, every powerful force can be used both positively and negatively. The key to use something positive in a positive way, especially a human power, the key to using it in a positive way is ensuring that it is greatly disciplined. Right? Think of somebody who goes, who enlists in our military and is trained to use arms and is trained to be perhaps a sharpshooter. Now, this person, when in the military and when following discipline and following instructions and keeping the rules, can be a very, very powerful force for good, destroying anyone who wants to harm us, um, uh, protecting our freedoms. This same person, if they don't control themselves, even if they don't mean any harm, they just don't control themselves, they're a little loose with their trigger, can cause terrible harm. And the same is with every powerful force for good. Not only do you have to mean well in order for it to be used for good, it has to be highly disciplined in order to be used properly for good. If you're not highly disciplined, anyone who's playing with um, fire, with complex substances, if you're not highly disciplined, you don't mean bad. You're not trying to build nuclear weapons. You're just trying to build nuclear power plants. But if you do not follow all the rules and all the testing and all the regulations, you end up with terrible destruction. So any powerful force for good, not only does it have to be used with good intentions, but it also needs to be 
highly disciplined and highly controlled. And the same is with the powerful human sexual drive. God created as our most powerful drive to allow us to cement two people together, creating the most powerful unit that stands at the center of our lives, at the center of our society, and creating this godly power that allows us to build families. However, when used outside of that role, it can be very, very harmful. People spend their lives living with guilt over sexual actions that they, have take, that they had taken in their lives. Even when no one was harmed or hurt, people still often live with guilt as a result. Even worse, often lives are destroyed as a result of consensual sexual relationships between people. It can often destroy the individuals involved as well as other people their lives can be destroyed as a result of consensual sexual acts. Right? Think of adultery and how that may have destroyed so many lives. Or people that have consensual uh, sex and then later regret what they did, later regret it. And lives are destroyed as a result. If even worse than that, lives are destroyed due to non-consensual or even aggressive or semi-consensual sexual action. And even if it's not, um, if e even very small, what could, could be considered minor sexual activity, can often be very, very harmful and can destroy lives as a result. So it's a very, very powerful force that when controlled and used properly is the most stabilizing force in our lives and can be the most powerful thing in our lives and create this at stand at the center of our lives and our society and when and the center of our love and then when not controlled and not directed properly can cause terrible harm now even within marriage sexuality has to be very tightly guarded in a number of different ways that Judaism um, requires that it has to be very, very guarded. Firstly, it is a powerful event that cements two people and doesn't involve anyone else. And therefore, not only sex itself, but all sexual contact and all real forms of affection should be done between two people, not in front of others. The goal of sexual, uh, the goal of your um, affection is to show affection to your spouse, not to prove to others that you have some sort of relationship. Uh, there's no need to post your affection on Facebook or other social media. People do it all the time. From my experience, since unfortunately I'm often privy to the other side um, of people's lives, and uh, often the people that post the most are the ones that are having the hardest time, are the ones that are struggling the most. And I see this very often. It doesn't, you don't need to prove anything. You only need to prove to each other. There's no need to prove anything to anyone else. It's really no one else's business what's going on in your private life. And it takes away from that uniqueness and that privacy when you publicize it and you make it a public thing. Also, when a couple is connecting, it's important that they both be focused. You have to be present at the time. Um, no alcohol. Drugs, of course. Um, 
You have to be awake at the time, focus. It's a very important. No, these are very important things. I mean, no, both sides have to be. In other words, it's not. It should never be used as just a outlet for your physical instinct for your instinctive needs, but it should be a powerful connection. You should, there should be no alcohol, you should be awake, both should be interested, both should be in agreement. It's very important. One time, um, even within a marriage, one time, um, a, uh, ha- tri- uh, some, trying some sort of sexual connection or activity without the other party's agreement or when they're not up to it or when they're not um, present for whatever reason um, can cause, and I've seen it, can cause terrible long-term harm to a relationship. It really can. So it's important to really cement a relationship. It's two people together. You both have to be there, present, involved at the time. You also can't have any disturbances. It should be quiet. It should be dark. There shouldn't be other things around. Don't have the TV on. You don't want the uh, TV anchors involved. You want it to be just, it should be a quiet, focused time. In a, the more focused, there's nothing wrong with having additional things that will add to the romance. But remember, the most important thing is the two of you, not, the other, not everything else around. And often people get carried away with the environment. It's not about the environment. It's about the two of you, and that's it. And now, Judaism also says that intercourse has to be a regular part of marriage. The Torah requires men to provide their wives with regular intercourse. This is not the women's responsibility. The Torah says it's the man's responsibility to provide their wives with regular intercourse. It's a men's responsibility. Um, How often is regular? It varies on the individual, the Talmud says, how often they're home. Some people travel a lot. It depends on the individual. But the standard, the Talmud says, is twice a week. That's a standard men should provide their wives if they want Right, but the, it's the men's responsibility to provide that for their to provide that for their wives. Um, if they, who, if the women want, the women want if the women want, the um, the most of the time, unfortunately, it, it can work both ways. But most of the time, the problem tends to be more with the husband than with the wife. But it, it could go both ways. It's, it goes either way. If you have, if someone does have trouble. Um, definitely someone should seek help. If you, do, if you do have trouble, I would definitely encourage anybody who knows someone like that or in such a relationship um, who's having trouble with regular intercourse. It's important that marriages, that you don't have dry marriages. And in Judaism, it's a very, very important thing. And so because, and um, in addition to that, in Ju- Judaism encourages that intercourse should not just be when you're in the mood, when you kind of get into it and then decide let's go for it tonight but rather it should, there should also be regular appointments and um, the Talmud says and of course it depends on circumstance Friday night is a standard evening Shabbat in honor of Shabbat is a standard evening it should, be, it, should, it should be a regular thing remember we don't see it as a base instinct it's a powerful tool to cement a relationship. And that relationship stands at the center of our lives and the center of our spirituality. And at that moment, the moment of 
the moment when a couple is connecting, it's a powerful moment of unity. It's a great spiritual moment. It's not just a base instinctive moment. And it's a time where one should not just get carried away at that moment with their sexual drive, but remain in control of themselves. And it's a time really to focus Um, It's a time to turn to God. It's a time to pray for anything you need because God is there with you. There's three of you there. God is there with you. And you need to keep that in mind. And this power then to create another generation, the power of creation, this power of infinity is then given to you at that very moment and can only be achieved through this powerful, godly, sexual connection that can be created between a couple. But only if it's done properly, if it's done um, with, and if it's done in a disciplined way where it's not between the couple a public external thing. Generally, couples that are more external in their romance tend to have more trouble, in, not always, but tend to have more trouble um, in their private lives. And um, it also must be, uh, must be something that should remain exclusive. And it has to remain very, very disciplined. As soon as, as soon as it moves out of the marriage relationship, and it, I don't only mean someone who has sex out of marriage, but any form of um, sexual contact outside of marriage um, is a problem because it harms your marriage relationship. And it harms that unique relationship. And you're taking the powerful tool God gave you and using it for bad. So any form, and unfortunately too much of it has become normalized in our lives. Which leads me to the next point. um, Which is, our view of sexuality has gone through in the last century huge changes and huge swings. In the 20th century, we moved from a Christian view of sexuality, which was a view of sexuality as a necessary evil, to what we could call a um, culture of hedonism or an open sexual culture where why limit it, um, express yourself, anything goes. After some 50, 60 years of this, Um, Since it's broken into our culture, often it began the name of women's rights and um, liberating women. But over the years, it's caused, and we know today, immeasurable harm to individuals. Uh, Many people lived for many years with unexplained guilt. Um, As a result, many people lost because of over-sexuality or over, if someone overuses their sexual drive, um, they end up harming their sexual drive. It kind of make it harder, makes it harder for them to create real relationships later. And worst of all, sexual are, and this is especially due to our, um, our um, popular culture, media, sexual advances became a way to create a relationship rather than cement it. So instead of the old style, the way it always was for thousands of years in all cultures, that the way you met somebody, you met someone, you built a non-sexual connection with them, non-physical connection, an emotional connection, you got to know each other, you got to care for each other, and only then, once you had a powerful relationship, was it cemented by any sexual contact. What our culture flipped that around and told you, and in every movie, 
That's the, in every reality show, that's the way it goes. You meet someone and you try some sort of sexual advance and see how they respond. And that's how you build a relationship. Thankfully, there's been a lot of pushback uh, in very, very recent years, really the last couple of years, for two very important reasons. Firstly, modern psychology has known already for some time, for a few decades, that a lot of this was very, very harmful. People were being hurt psychologically, irreversibly, um, due to unwanted sexual contact. And, um, and sometimes even, not even unwanted, unsure if they wanted or wanted and then regretted sexual contact. It was causing a lot of psychological harm, and marriage therapists knew this for a very long time. Um, very recently, uh, <coughs> women have felt very empowered to point out the dangers, because they're usually on the receiving end of the harm, and to point out the dangers and the harm of this lifestyle, and how many of them were not very happy with the way these relationships were evolving, especially when it was unwanted. So what we actually have today is a somewhat contradicting sexual culture. Sexuality, firstly, is expected to be turned on and off at will, as if a person is a machine. You are expected to be able to hang out in, for young people, go to parties, go to bars, dance, and then not turn on your sexual drive until the time comes or until you're ready and be able to turn it off and turn it on whenever you want, treating people as if they are machines. In reality, we all know that people don't work like that. People have a natural sexual drive that gets going very easily, doesn't get easily turned off, is hard to control when overly... Um, when, um, when overly um, limited, can also, um, can, can then, that drive can be harmed, um, often in ways that are very, very difficult to reverse. And so we know that sexuality doesn't just turn on and off. It's something that we humans feel most of the time. We could control what we do. Humans have self-control and are always responsible for what they do. But, one, but what you can't just turn on and off at will. Also, today we live in a time where relationships are still expected to be created through sexual advances. But if you somehow misread the person, you can cause yourself great, great harm. And unfortunately, our modern society has not been able to find the balance. The inherent contradictions in this system are obvious. The system doesn't work. It's caused, imme caused immeasurable harms, uh, harm in Western society in the last 50 years. Judaism is very different. Judaism doesn't allow any sexual contact whatsoever outside of marriage, and that's it. You build a relationship with someone before you marry someone, before you connect with someone. You need to know them first. There's a lot of myths about that out there. Jewish law is very clear. You cannot marry someone you don't know. You need to know them. You need to build a relationship with them. You need to um, you need to build a um, a love. You need to build a love together. And only then does any only then within marriage only then is there any sexual contact. Can I interject? Yes. Well, what's that doing with me? 
You're absolutely right. And not only does that harm, did that harm women in many ways, it harms men as well in many ways. And uh, I, don't wanna, I just want to finish off. So we've had a very different, uh, and perhaps I think I mentioned this in a previous class, the one thing that while Judaism has a lot of what we could call um, uh, very involved parts, involves many parts of our lives, Shabbat, kosher, but perhaps the one thing that Judaism stands so apart from Western values is in our view of, in our view of sexuality. We see it as a very positive thing, a very powerful thing, but it must be disciplined. It must be limited, and because of that, we have rules of tzniot, which we spoke about some time back, rules of modesty, um, including that men and women who are not um, immediate family don't touch at all, including, as we're including men, and, um, men and women who are dating don't touch at all um, before marriage. They don't touch whatsoever. Even though they're developing a close relationship, they, they remain uh, celibate until, uh, until after marriage. This Jewish view of sexuality is very, very different than both the Christian view as well as very, very different than our Western view of, sexual, of sexuality. But when you see the, our current culture struggling in its inherent contradictions, in its inherent, um, uh, in, in its, in, in its own, and falling apart in its own contradictions, and you see um, statues that went up on university campuses of naked people because... Um, because sexuality should be open. And in the last couple of years, a lot of those statues are coming down because a lot of women feel, and have always felt, we're just afraid to say it, felt um, hurt by or um, felt un unsafe by such statues. And, um, and, and, in many, and there's many other contradictions within our Western uh, sense of sexuality. And we have to know that we, our traditions, really has the answer. And if we go back to our Torah... We, um, one of the uh, most amazing parts of the Torah is the prophecy of a fellow called Bilam. Bilam was a man that hated the Jewish people and came to curse them. And uh, instead of cursing them, God told, gave him all these blessings to say that he ended up saying instead. And a lot of powerful praises for our people. Perhaps the most famous of all of Bilam's praises were the words, Matovu ohalecha Yaakov mishkenotecha Yisrael. How good are your tents, Jacob, your dwelling places, Israel. And the Midrash says that Bilam, coming from, he was a Moabite, coming from the debased society that they had, their, um, their own open sexuality, they were a hedonist society, coming from there and seeing the beauty of the Jewish home. The Jew, the, he saw the children of Israel were shochen nishvatav, dwelling every family in a different tent. He saw camp. And in the camp there were thousands of tents. And each tent had a different family in it, living. A, a mother, a father, with children, all living together in solid family units. Without, um, without the uh, li uh, lives that other of of single of single uh, parents due to children born out of wedlock and children and um, families that are disjoined and complicated families. He saw a certain structure. Now, of course, not every family, even among the Jewish people, is going to have that structure. Not everyone's going to find their bashert. People who thought they did often discover it wasn't, and they end up getting divorced. Sometimes you lose a spouse. People end up living 
all their life, part of their life, single. People often remarry, and Judaism allows for divorce. Oh, we spoke about it a couple while back. Allows for divorce, allows for remarriage. We, we do allow for that, and we understand that. But generally, marriage stands at the center of our structure, of our um, societal structure. And so we really, while other cultures and the cultures around us are struggling with sexuality, struggling to find its place, we really know where it belongs. We know we have the keys to respond. We have the tools by following Torah to use the power of sexuality to perfect our lives, to um, give, to make, to bring our lives to um, the greatest perfection, to bring us happiness, to bring happiness to those around us, to raise us to the most spiritual heights. We have those tools, and we can. We have the ability to teach them to others. And um, just to uh, finish off, I would. Um,